0: You're listening to Comedy Central.
1: One of the main questions many people may have, and you see this unfortunately all too often, is people saying, Why do you have to keep trudging this up? Can't we just move on? It's been 400 years now. Can't we just move on? what do you hope would be sparked by the conversations that come from a magazine that delves into slavery like this? What, what, do, you, what do you want someone who sits at home and says, they go, Nicole, I'm, I'm white and I, I have nothing to do with this and I don't know what you
2: want me to do. What would you hope people take away? Uh, that's a great question. Let me just say, for the record, nobody wants to get over slavery more than black folks. Uh, it's not... <laughs> not to our benefit, right? The the fact that our nation can't get over slavery has not benefited black people for a single day. But that's the problem. We've never dealt with the harm that was done. I'm 43 years old and my father was born into a Mississippi where black people couldn't vote, black people couldn't use public facilities. That was all perfectly legal. We're not far removed from this past at all. And there's never been uh, any effort to redress that harm. So what I hope that people will take from the magazine, every single story in the magazine starts with America today Mm -hmm. and shows how these things about American life that you think are unrelated to slavery actually are. And I hope by confronting that truth, maybe we can finally start to repair the harm that was done and then finally uh, start to live up to be the country of our ideals.
1: There's been so much talk about history and heritage. People talking about monuments in America, people talking about the history of America. But in many ways, Brian, you would argue that the history people wish to America is not, uh, wish to remember of America, is not really the full story. What is your project about?
3: Well, it's about confronting the fact that we're not really free in America. I think we're burdened by a history of racial inequality that we have not addressed, and it's become like smog in the air, and we all breathe it in. And it doesn't take much to expose these conflicts and tensions, and so we're trying to change that. We want to talk about some things that haven't been talked about. I think we need to talk about the fact that we're a post-genocide society. Before white settlers came to this continent, there were millions of native people who were slaughtered through famine and war and disease, but we didn't call it a genocide. We said, those people are savages, and we created this narrative of racial difference, this ideology of white supremacy. And that's what ushered in centuries of enslavement. And for me, the great evil of American slavery wasn't involuntary servitude, it wasn't forced labor, it was this ideology of white supremacy, this idea that black people aren't like white people. And we never really addressed that. If you read the 13th Amendment, it talks about dealing with involuntary servitude and forced labor, but it doesn't talk about ending this ideology of white supremacy. And because of that, I don't think slavery ended in 1865, I think it evolved and it turned into decades of terrorism and violence. And we don't understand that history, and that's why we started this project. Between the end of the Civil War and World War II, thousands of African Americans were pulled out of their homes, they were burned alive, they were hanged, they were brutalized. We're not interested in talking about this history because we want to punish America. I think we want to liberate America. We want to get us to the place where we can actually look at one another without this narrative of racial difference, this ideology of white supremacy limiting who we are and what we can be in many ways you argue that
1: Obama's presidency and black leadership in any way, shape, or form Mm -hmm. is in some way contributing to white supremacy, which is a very complicated argument. What what do you mean when you say that? Well, I
0: wouldn't quite put it. I would say it's, it's not, you know, like I don't think Obama did anything but be a human being and, you know, go into the office and just happen to be somebody to check black on the census form. It's the reaction to that, right? It's always the reaction to the ordinariness, to the bourgeoisness, to the middle classness of you know normal everyday black people, and how well that accords with what this country claims to value. That, that's always a threat because it automatically undermines the suppositions of white supremacy, which says that black people, you know, don't take care of their kids. Black people, are, you know, are you know always you know killing each other, and ending up in jail. Like there's a kind of moral judgment that can always be made on black people. This goes back to, you know, justifications to slavery. And black folks who present themselves, you know, in, in, a, in a particular way as undermining that, it, you know, it, it, it's always a threat to the thinking about white supremacy. I think that's why folks were so offended by Obama. And I think that contributed to the birtherism, you know, all the sort of weird conspiracy theories that, you know, sprung up around them. The KKK
1: grand wizard emeritus, uh, David Duke, he told his followers, to vote for Donald Trump. And uh, Donald Trump was coy about disavowing Duke's support, right? So, by the way, this this is David Duke over here. This guy here. Yeah, this is him sporting his casual look. See, that's, yeah, it's just like, uh, no hood. Please, please, Mr. Wizard was my father. My friends call me grand. Now, uh, obviously a grand wizard of the KKK praising the Republican frontrunner is gonna stir up a lot of emotion. And we saw that on CNN. As a Trump supporter, and a Democrat faced off as the Super Tuesday results were coming in.
3: Racial tensions front and center in this year's race. Two of our commentators get into a fiery debate on the issue.
4: Commentators Jeffrey Lord and Van Jones got into this heated debate over Donald Trump and the KKK.
3: When he is playing funny with the Klan, that is not cool. This is what liberals do. You were dividing people by race. About. The Klan divides people to, by you race. You have to divide the by Klan race. The Klan killed people by race, and he had the opportunity, and he didn't and they it did it they Even did it to further the progressive agenda. What the f***? Why were you so afraid
1: of what he was saying, and why, why are you so afraid of the rhetoric that's being, that's being perpetuated?
3: Well, I think that America needs to wake the hell up. Wake the hell up this is real this is a real thing i think you've had people everybody says you know republicans or the establishment like why didn't they take trump more seriously yeah the whole society is making the same exact mistake i think we have the rise of a right-wing authoritarian movement and i think this guy is likely to become president of the united states if we don't put screwing around White
5: nationalists descending on Charlottesville, Virginia to protest the removal of a statue of Confederate leader Robert E. Lee. In Charlottesville, Virginia, where protests are turning
3: violence. At
2: least one person is dead after a car plowed into a group of
3: counter-protesters. President Trump turns an infrastructure event into a rambling rant
5: blaming both sides for the violence. You had some very bad people in that group, but you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. I think there's blame on both sides. You look, at, you look at both sides, I think there's blame on both sides. And I have no doubt about it, and you don't have any doubt about it either. First of all, a racist neo-Nazi killed a peacefully
1: protesting woman with his car. Right? Then the president of the United States defended the neo-Nazis who that dude was marching with. And this is the thing, it's not once, but twice. Like, Donald Trump said it. Then three days later, he came back and said, hey, hey, you know how I, uh, I said that Nazi defending thing? Well, I just realized that um, I, I messed up. I didn't defend them enough. Yeah, yeah. My, my support was here, and I was, I was trying to get it here. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not gonna lie. I don't know about you, but it seemed for a moment that, okay, this was it. This was clearly not what presidents do. Uh, You know, after tragic national events, a leader, even a mediocre leader, says the things to unite the country, to calm the tensions, not inflame them, and especially not express sympathy for Nazi sympathizers. But today in America, (laughs) we're not even at that point seven months into his term, 41 months to go, by the way, and the president of the United States has officially legitimized white supremacists, basically saying, we need to see things from the Nazis' point of view. You know, march a mile in their boots.
5: Are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities as we saw in kenosha and as we've seen in portland i'm willing to do anything i want to see well peace. then do it sir say I, it do it say it do you want to call them what do you want to call them give me a name give me a name and and right, like me white supremacist and white white supremacist and right proud, proud boys Malaysia. stand back and stand by but i'll tell you what i'll tell you what somebody's got to do something about antifa and the left because this is not a right his wing own, problem wow and there you have it, folks.
1: Trump had an opportunity to be like white supremacists. I don't with you. Instead, he's like, stand by guys. I never know when I'm gonna need you. Telling white supremacists to stand down and telling them to stand by are not the same thing, right? That one little word makes a huge difference. Like the difference between a blowout and a blow job. Do not ask for the wrong one at Supercuts. Again, to the staff at Supercuts, I apologize. I, I hadn't slept and I didn't read the menu properly. And even for that non-condemnation, Trump had to be dragged into it. Like, no president should ever have to be pressured this hard into condemning white supremacists. It's the easiest thing. Trump did it so grudgingly. He was like one of those guys who refuses to make real apologies. What, I'm, I'm supposed to apologize for tailgating at your dad's funeral? Fine, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you're unable to have a good time. Some of us are still living. And by the way, you know that you've truly botched your condemnation of a hate group when that hate group says, thank you for the endorsement. The Proud Boys, a far right extremist group,
3: immediately celebrating the president's comments on social media. They went nuts on social media celebrating. They put out those words as a rallying cry.
5: Stand back, stand by. Within minutes, the group's members were posting on private social media, calling Trump's comments, quote, historic. The New York Times reports that some group members labeled it as a tacit endorsement of their violent tactics, while another posted the group was already seeing a spike in new recruits.
1: Yes, thanks to Donald Trump's failed condemnation, this hate group is now seeing an increase in recruits which means in the history of television, that might be one of the worst answers ever given. The Proud Boys liked Donald Trump's answer so much that they're even adopting it as their new slogan. And that actually might piss off Trump because the one thing he definitely believes in is getting royalties. Whoa, 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 nobody should be advocating the supremacy of the white man without giving Danny his cut. I don't know why at this point, people are still acting surprised when he refuses to denounce white supremacists. Because as you may remember, this is not exactly a new thing for him.
5: I think there's blame on both sides. You had some very bad people in that group, but you also had people that were very fine people on both sides.
3: you see today white nationalism as a rising threat around the world? I don't really. There are white supremacist groups and individuals like that who support you, some of whom you've even retweeted. Well, that
5: I know nothing about. I mean, I don't know about retweeting. I mean, you you retweet somebody who turns out to be a white supremacist. I know nothing about these groups that are supporting me.
3: Will you unequivocally condemn David Duke and say that you don't want his vote or that of other white supremacists in this election? I don't know anything about David Duke,
5: Okay, I don't know anything about what you're even talking about with uh, white supremacy or white supremacists. You wouldn't want me to condemn a group that I know nothing about. I'd have to look. If you would send me a list of the groups, I will do research on them, and certainly I would disagree vow if I thought there was something wrong. The but you may have Klan? groups in there that are totally fine and it would be very unfair. So give me a list of the groups and I'll let you know.
3: Okay. I mean, I'm just talking about David Duke and the Ku Klux Klan here, but...
5: I don't know. Any, honestly, I don't know David Duke. I don't believe I've ever met him. I'm pretty sure I didn't meet him and I just don't know anything about him.
1: Yeah. It's actually hard to keep track of all the times that Trump had the chance to be anti-racist and didn't. The only thing he avoids more than condemning white supremacists is paying taxes. So look, I get why his supporters want to act like Trump's Proud Boys moment last night was some kind of accidental or unintentional gaffe. But if you see someone making the same mistake over and over again, well, at some point, you have to accept that it's not a mistake, it's their belief. Let me ask you this. You, um, you talk to some people who, in, in, without your show, I don't think you'd ever talk to, you know, like whether it's like people who are in the clan, used to be in the clan, very racist, very homophobic, very anything. And, I, I, I'm not gonna lie. You you seem to get along well with them as human beings. Like you 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 seem to like. You, and you are very black as Mal yes. Bell. I mean, like you yes. you know what I'm saying. It's not like you 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 sneaking in. You're a black I'm person. I'm to white when I Exactly. Way, the light, the light. You come in as a black man. They see you as a black man, and then you guys seem to. Also, get Also, I'm
3: huge. I'm huge. <laughs> Nine tall, 400 pounds.
0: So I wanted to
1: know: Have you maintained any type of friendship with these people post the show, or or has it just like? Are you just like? Do, like, do you get to know them as human beings or do, are they just cordial to you as Kamal Bell, as an individual, and they're not now like cool with black people?
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly it's not, I always say it's not American History X where I do laundry with them for an hour and then they come out and go, man, I shouldn't be a racist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not quite that easy, if only it was. But I do think people go, oh, this is not what I expected. I see this guy differently. It's not gonna happen in one day or one, one conversation. The thing right, I understand right, about right. this whole racism discussion is that, in the whole ending of racism, it's a long struggle and it takes time. But do you think, from your experience, that some of it,
1: you know, could be helped by the conversations, or is that just like a that's just like a hopeful mythical world
0: that we sometimes dream of? I mean, some of it can be helped by the conversation, but if those people don't go into the voting booth and vote based on what they learned in the conversation, then it's just a conversation. So I think sometimes we overprioritize the conversation, like me and that racist had a conversation. That felt good, but it's actually like about how people evolve over time. And I think that's, the conversation's a part of that.
1: Your writing has, I mean, made a lot of people feel uncomfortable. A lot of white people, a lot of white men in particular uncomfortable. And that was before your current book, Mediocre, which is about the dangers of white male mediocrity. Talk me through what that means.
4: Absolutely. So, this was a book kind of written out of frustration. If you write on issues of race and gender in America, especially since 2016, you see all these think pieces. You know, why is Chad so angry? Why is this white man so upset? And what I wanted people to look at was the political structure behind the time that we're in. I wanted people to understand that this rise in, like, you know, hate filled, racist, violent, white male political ideology is by design. And so I wanted people to look at that because we have to change how we act and what we value as a society if we want to solve this problem. So that's really what we're looking at is a history in America of how we have actually made it beneficial or at least seem beneficial to white men to act like the only definition of success is power over women and people of color, and really what it's cost us over multiple generations.
1: When you when you look at this conversation, though, I mean, obviously there's so much resistance. There are a lot of white men who are like, I have nothing, so how dare you say that I have any of this mediocrity or this power that comes with it? How can you say, I don't see any of this power. I live in West Virginia. I have no no money. I have barely any food. Where is this white power that you are speaking of? How do you try and 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 if you even do try, explain that to white people in those situations. Cause oftentimes I find that will be some of the base that is riled up where they're told you have this privilege and these positions and they go, "But, but I don't see it.
4: Absolutely. And I think it's important to recognize, first and foremost, privilege is relative, right? So if you're standing, if you're an average everyday white man standing in a room with Oprah Winfrey, chances are in many areas she has more privilege than you. But if she is standing next to a white millionaire or billionaire, chances are she has less privilege. It's situational depending on where you're at. But I think it's really important to recognize that white supremacy in this country is a pyramid scheme. So it's really the idea, you play along and you will have more. You will have more than right. black people, you will have more than women, right. often it doesn't work out that way. And that's part of why we see the anger is that people bought into this system. They're playing along. They've been promised and they voted accordingly. They've spent their money accordingly, that their greatness is coming. And when it doesn't, who do they blame? Often people like me, people like you, because they've been told you're supposed to be better off. And so a lot of that anger that says, I don't have that, I don't have it, ignores the fact that you weren't probably ever going to get it, but you were promised that. And that becomes a political problem and it becomes a part of the violence that often some white men end up supporting.
1: There's no denying as America becomes more and more diverse, the group of white men that we are talking about are going to become more and more resistant cuz they're going oh i'm losing my grip on as you said that promise of my place in america so how do we get to a place where we invite people into the conversation without pandering but still invites people in and going like oh no hey this is for everybody's benefit. It's not about you losing and me winning, it's about everybody winning as opposed to buying into the permit scheme.
4: You know, it's definitely something I talk about a bit in the book, right? The real harm that this actually does to white men, the system being told that, you know, your payout's coming and it never does. And the sense of failure that often accompanies white men when they've bought into this. But I think it's also really important to recognize that I personally am not writing to create kinder, gentler white men. I'm writing because I am a black woman being harmed by this system and the way it works. But I do hear from white men who say, you know, you've named a thing I couldn't name. You've named a disappointment, a constant, you know, yearning for more that I couldn't name. But I don't expect that, you know, a white man who's angry and, you know, is completely a political opposite for me is going to pick up my book. But what I do expect is that people who know something's wrong are going to start looking at our values and our systems and changing it. and then the white men who come up in these systems come up differently, right? The way in which the power that this violence has is lessened. And that's really what my goal is.
0: The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more.